0: Warning! This week's escape pod is rated X for strong sexual content and mature themes. We mean mature in a literal and colloquial sense. It's not for children. This escape pod is dedicated to Sir Arthur C. Clarke, born 1917, died March 19, 2008. Clarke's second law, the only way to discover the limits of the possible is to venture past them into the impossible. <laughs> ESCAPE POD, 150 March 20th, 2008 Today's story, This, My Body, by Jeremiah Tolbert Hello and welcome to ESCAPE POD. I'm Steve Ealy. This week we're brought to you by Scott Sigler's Infected. Scratching your itch for science fiction thrillers in bookstores everywhere on April 1st. We have a provocative piece today by Jeremiah Tolbert. It's also an unusually long story for us. In fact, it goes way beyond our guidelines. But I figure every 50 episodes or so, we can break our rules just a little. And what do you know? This is episode 150. I was going to keep the intro short for that reason, but I have to say something about Arthur C. Clarke. He's famous for a lot of things. Conceiving the communication satellite, 2001, Clark's third law, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. But what I remember about discovering Clark at an early age is the sense of revelation that runs through everything of his I can remember. His stories are an unveiling. They show the universe as glorious and beautiful and terrible and so much bigger than us. One of my defining moments as a reader was picking up Childhood's End at the age of 10. My mom saw the title, thought it was a kid's book. It freaked me out. Gave me nightmares. So I read it again. That was one step to my being an editor now. His short fiction, The Nine Billion Names of God, puts chills down my spine. And I once sat down to write myself some rules for a skate pod. One of them was, We Will Never Ever Buy the Star is a Christmas Story. It's one of the best science fiction stories ever written, but that would be cruel. Clark has his place among the Grandmasters because his stories have emotional impact. Heinlein was the writer who made us say, wow, this is neat. Asimov showed us that logic and reason could make good drama and strong story. Clark is the one who taught us awe. Sense of wonder was his playground. He'll be missed by many for many reasons. I'll miss him for that. Our story this week is This My Body by Jeremiah Tolbert. There's a taste of sense of wonder in this one, too. Mr. Tolbert lives in Wyoming and was heard here recently with Instead of a Loving Heart. This story first appeared in 2005 in Interzone number 199. So, that concludes the hors d'oeuvres. If you'll please be seated, we will begin serving story time. This My Body by Jeremy Tolbert I am the lover. I am the chef. I am the preterite priest. I am the secret, unknowable ingredient. You may taste me a thousand times, but never hold my essence on your tongue or capture it in your memory. I am the flavor of ecstasy. Taste me and know God. Prayer of the Asazonma Saints My Devarus attacks her salad with animalistic fury. Dressing glistens from her naked breasts in the warm lights of the sacred banquet hall, but she does not notice. Her mind is subsumed by the taste of my skin. The salad of mixed greens, dusted with light vinaigrette, covers my calves and shins. The dressing works well as a glue and holds the leaves to my skin until my devarus for the evening plucks them with her fingers, or, more often, with her teeth. Roasted pepper chicken steams on my right thigh— and a garbanzo bean and raisin dish cools on my left. Chilled strawberries are affixed to my stomach and soft penis with a sugary glaze. And I am bored. I glance around the room. The guests are mostly women tonight. I want to know what the other Asizomas have prepared for their devoros. I want to know what the other Asizomas have prepared for their devoros. Brother Lucian returns my gaze across the room as an overweight woman I do not recognize devours a main course of quiche from his chest. Lucian's quiches always come out burned, and I can smell the charred edges from here. Lucky for him, even garbage would taste like ambrosia if eaten from his body. Lucian yawns, and I have to stifle one of my own. She has finished her salad, and I can feel her lips and teeth grazing my thighs. I am instructed to respond to this. I release a low growl and make myself grow hard. The wayfish girl moans and bites harder. Her name is Adriana Goldspin, and this is her 19th birthday. Her meal tonight is a gift from her mother. While Adriana eats, I close my eyes and breathe deeply. The many courses around the room are like bright stars in my mind. A pantry of ingredients has been put to use tonight. I seek out my favorite smell. It exudes from a pastry dessert that Morgan has baked for his Devorus. Cinnamon affects me. It makes me dizzy, and all I can think about is the tingle in my sinuses at the back of my throat. It's one of the few pleasures I am allowed, but only sparingly. A sharp pain in my thigh brings me back from the odor. Adriana has nearly broken the skin. Adriana is rich, of course. All of my Devoruses are thanks to the agreement I have made with the cuisinados that run our brothel temple. For a few illicit samplings of my skin, they agreed to my plans. I desire a private contract. A private contract pays more, and with it, I will be able to afford proper culinary school and the treatments that will restore the humanity that my family traded away for a pittance. I make a silent prayer to a god I have little faith in. Let this be the one. Adriana has moved to the dessert now, and I can feel her desire brushing across me like the memory of soft cloth I can no longer feel. Her breath quickens. Would you wish to commune with the holy wine in private? I ask softly. Oh, yes, she whispers, reaching down and taking me in her hand. Please. I climb from the couch slowly, careful not to shake the remaining bits of food from my body. I take her by her hand and lead her away from the banquet hall to my private room. Inside my room, we fall to the bed. I am not passionate. I imitate passion. But, incensed by the meal and the taste of my skin, she does not notice. They never do. I feel the thrusts of my hips, her lips upon my skin, her tongue darting and tasting each inch, each variation in my flavor. But I do not feel the natural response. That was taken away before I was old enough to appreciate it for what it was, by the same process that gave me my seasoned body. The Quizanatos instruct that this lack of feeling was an improvement. For me to feel would be a distraction from my task. It is not for me to know God. I am the instrument of His desire, the Preterite passed over by God for the salvation of others. Adriana comes, and comes again. I continue until she demands, gasping for air, that I stop. I obey, and she rolls away, tangled in the crimson silk sheets. I lay in silence, breathing slowly. She dials the room for the ocean. Aegean light streams from above, and the sound of distant waves lapping against the shore plays from speakers hidden around the room. An ache stirs within me, a longing for something hidden in the depths of memory. I cannot remember seeing the ocean but I miss it somehow. Adriana shudders with aftershocks as she lies on her back and watches ripples play across the ceiling. I watch her. Her mother has paid for the entire evening, so I do not leave. After a minute, she speaks. I wish I could have you every day. I carefully sit up and pour a glass of wine from the bottle at the bedside table. I place my finger in the glass and stir it gently, adding my flavor to the liquor. I offer the glass to her lips, and she drinks greedily. "'You could buy my contract. I am available.' She sighs and rolls over to face a wall of holographic fan coral swaying in time to the crashing waves. "'Daddy would never allow that. Mother has to keep her essays on at the villa.' I swallow bitter words before I can speak them and sit silently. My taste is in her mouth again, and it won't be long before she wants more. I am colder to the prospect of more sex with her. I cannot enjoy it any more than any man or woman enjoys a job, but now I will take no satisfaction. She spins back to face me, grin like a shark across her face. The look makes me ill, but I chastise myself for the feeling. I should know by now that I am only the instrument, and her look is not for me. I force a smile and concentrate on making myself erect again. Sex is food, and food is sex. Both are passions that awaken the soul. Through holy ecstasy, we may know Him and His passion for us. This is the precept of the holy order of cuisine and flesh. I cannot remember my family, but my files say that they had been farmers, devastated by the heatwave famines. When the order came to offer relief, my parents sold me for an embarrassingly small sum. I am worth a thousand times what they were paid. The order took me and prepared me to become an asses Real chefs trained a group of us in the basic craft of cooking, which ingredients can be combined and which cannot, the principles of heat. Five years of lessons, and I enjoyed them. It was the most food I had ever been allowed to eat. Next, the priests instructed us in the word of God. We were taught to pray, but little else. The cuisinados said then that we were too young to learn real theology. Even then, I saw the religion as a gloss on our existence. Puberty struck, and the cuisinados stole me from my bed in the night. I do not remember the gene therapy. When I try to think back on that time, all I can picture is a giant needle dripping milky fluid from the tip. The pain lasted for weeks. My hair fell out, as is the case with all S's on I recuperated by taking hours of sunlight every week afterwards so that compounds in my skin would properly form into superflavonoids. Bathing was forbidden. Courtesans taught me the lessons of love, and always they were licking me, tasting me, following the development of my essence. I was locked away from all others. Even the cuisinados could not resist my flavor. That was the beginning of my isolation from man and God. It was also when my true training began. Everything before had only been the cuisinado's passing time, waiting for me to ripen. I was next instructed to use my body in every part of the preparation of food. I mixed no ingredient without it having contact with some part of me, transforming it into the most holy of sacraments. As the therapy warped my body into God's instrument, as the teachers instructed me in the ways of flesh— my mind and soul became numb. What kind of God would wish for me to be molded into this form? What God wished for me to give up my own salvation to provide for others? I hated this life. I hated him. Brother Antonio, please see me in my office. A disembodied voice commands, waking me. Sometime in the night, my Devarus has departed. I do not miss her. I don a terry cloth robe and hurry away. The master cuisinado only summons asses en masse who have performed poorly. I have only been summoned once before, when Sister Lithos replaced my basil with ground oregano as a prank, and in my hurry to prepare a meal for a latecomer, I hadn't noticed. A chiba businessman had been allergic. Since then, I have always tasted my ingredients and guarded them against the others. As I approached the cuisinado's office... I hear a conversation behind the ornately carved cherry-wood door. A man with a Spanish accent speaks with Montero. "'Where did he train?' asks the accented voice. "'Rockford, here in the U.S., but the monastery was run by expatriate Italians,' answers Montero. "'His particular essence is exquisite, handcrafted by the absolute best. "'If any can aid you to know him, it is brother Antonio.' And his technique. Unparalleled in this house, certainly. I have seen better, but rarely. Hope and relief mix sweetly. Could this be Adriana's father come to buy my contract? Certainly I have done nothing wrong, or Montero would not be describing me in such glowing terms. I knock. Come in, Montero says. The man with the accent wears a neat pinstripe suit. He sits in the oak chair opposite from Montero, and a black cane rests against the side of the chair. He is older than me by a quarter of a century at least, in his early fifties. His features are Hispanic, a prominent jaw, black hair faded to gray at the temples, and a sharp, aristocratic nose. "'Brother Antonio, this is Signor Escamilla,' Montero says. "'A pleasure to meet you,' I say, glancing to the floor as I was taught. "'He is rather handsome,' Escamilla says." There is a hint of worry in his voice, and it slays the hope in my heart. He is the best we have. He may be the best on the continent, Montero says, smiling. Signor Escamilla may be interested in purchasing your contract, Brother Antonio. Some Asazonmas prefer men, and some prefer women. In that sense, we are no different from anyone else. For the most part, I prefer women, but my preference is meaningless in the face of such an opportunity. Eventually, Signor Escamilla will grow tired of my flavor, and I will serve out my contract for him as a disused possession. My debt to the cuisinados will be repaid, the debts my family placed upon me. Most private contracts would earn me enough to pay for a reversal after a couple of additional years. Taste him, Montero says, waving his hand at me. I step forward, and Signor Escamilla takes my wrist and licks the base of my palm, as is the custom. He is no amateur. Hmm, impressive,' he drops my hand. "'However, it is not a matter of whether I like the taste. He's to be a gift for my Contessa.' "'I am surprised to hear this. I would be a very expensive gift.' "'Perhaps she could come to pray with me herself,' I say, emboldened. Escamilla shakes his head and smiles lightly. "'That would ruin the surprise.' From his look, it is clear that I am to be a toy, not an instrument of religious observance. I feel some relief at this. I am afraid I cannot hold him for you, says the cuisinado. The word is out about Antonio, and I expect there will be a bidding war soon. Escamilla squints up at me. I concentrate on remaining still, tensing various muscles as I was taught. I will take him, Escamilla says, with a quick nod. I quickly collect my things while Escamilla and Montero sort out the details of the transfer. My possessions are few—a recipe reader, three changes of clothing, and some unusual spices I bought on rare visits to the market. I am so thrilled that I nearly forget my real nutmeg hidden in a hollow within my mattress. I meet with Escamilla at the house entrance an hour later. "'My transport awaits us,' he says, walking past me briskly and out the door." I follow him outside. A sleek black craft hovers inches above the pavement, door open. I climb into the limousine without a single glance at the house. It has done nothing but keep me from my goals. Escamilla pours himself a scotch from the minibar inside. From the scent, I know it is not synthetic. I wonder just how wealthy Escamilla is. He stares at me, and I devote my attention to the carpeted floor. "'We might as well be friends, Antonio.' Escamilla says, considering that you will be screwing my wife before the week is out. I flinch at the harsh word. Some of my devoruses have light harsh talk, but I do not. Life is harsh enough without taking such an act and degrading it with cruelty. Would you like a drink? I'm sorry, I say. I shift uncomfortably in my seat. Alcohol can sour the taste. They haven't allowed you many pleasures in life, have they? Escamilla shrugs and downs his scotch. First, I shall tell you about myself. The staff gossips would if I do not, so I feel it best to explain myself. He pauses, glancing out the window as the limousine lifts off, rapidly gaining altitude. I feel queasy, but it soon passes. I am a businessman. My interests are off-world, but I prefer to make my home here on earth, as does my wife. I am off-world often, for weeks or months at a time. Do you understand? I nod. "'My previous marriage did not survive the strains my work places on a relationship. "'I do not intend for my second marriage to suffer the same fate. "'I love my Contessa deeply. "'If I did not, you would still be pleasing the pretty debutantes.' Escamilla pours himself another drink, and again he downs it in one gulp. "'I feel that I should say something, but I do not know what. "'Contessa will not be in need of your services while I am in our home.' She is free to use you in whatever way she wishes while I am away. You will stay on our guesthouse, and you will make yourself invisible while I am home. The menace that seeps into his voice now is frightening. What kind of facilities will be available to me? I ask, trying to change the subject. There is a full kitchen in the guesthouse. Gustav, the house chef, can assist you in acquiring any supplies you may require. Thank you for this opportunity to spread the word of God, sir. Escamilla shrugs, and his menace fades. "'I don't believe in that religious pablum. "'To me, you are simply the most expensive sex toy on the market. "'I will not hesitate to sell your contract to a whorehouse in Shanghai if you cross me. "'I am forgiving of many things, but not betrayal.' "'I understand. "'Such rules are to be expected. "'They taught us in the order that some could not see us as a tool of God, "'despite the order's attempts to dehumanize us and our design.' It was a difficult balance to strike, making us useful and yet still alluring. Escamilla glances out the window at the blur of ocean passing below, then seems to remember something. He turns back to me with a frightening look of ferocity from before. One more item. My goddamn daughter is living with us. My first wife has thrown her out again. You ought to have no contact with her. None. He smiles. Certainly, I say but I can't ignore that his knuckles have turned white from the force of his grip on the ebony cane. A faceless bio-servant directs me to the small bungalow at the rear of the estate immediately upon our arrival. I'm uncertain where in the world we are. It is night, and the grounds are surrounded by orange groves, and the air is warm here. Someplace closer to the equator, I decide. It was much cooler at the house. I never learned geography except when it was necessary for choosing the best ingredients. I know of places like California, Italy, Spain for their foods or wine. I pass the days in seclusion. I try to pray, but it makes me feel guilty. It is hypocritical to turn to him only in times of need, but at each turn of my fate, he has denied my prayers. If I am God's tool, as the Cuisinados believe, then he has left me in the rain to rust." I commit myself to performing in the manner that my Devorus desires. Any holy aspects of the equation are not in my hands, but in a greater power. If she desires a lover, she will get one. If she wishes to know God, I will have to deal with that when the time comes. I do not know him. I busy myself waiting for Escamilla to depart by indexing the kitchen's pantry and tools. Much of the cookware I send back to the house. They only serve as a bitter reminder of what I once believed I would learn. Two weeks of waiting, and then, as I lay beside the pool, soaked in the Mediterranean sunlight, an elderly maid with watery eyes named Susanna approaches, humming a cheerful tune. The master has left on business and will not return for some time, she says with a wink. Come see Gustave. He will prepare you for this evening. Finally, a shiver runs through me. Yes, I must collect ingredients. I prepared a list days ago in anticipation. I quickly retrieve my list and follow the maid down narrow paths between the orange trees. They are in blossom, and their intoxicatingly sweet scent is overwhelming. They never bear fruit, Susanna says. Design that way at the Countess's instruction. They are always in bloom. We reach the mansion, three stories tall and ornate with columns and sinuous trim. Susanna leads me past fountains and rows of deep red roses to an open door at the rear of the building. I smell the sizzle of food in the pan, hear the sounds of pots and cutlery rattling about the sink. Susanna leaves me standing in the doorway, my jaw agape. This kitchen is what heaven must look like. There are ovens and ranges to prepare a meal for hundreds here. Rows and rows of shiny copper pots, teflon pans, baking sheets, sauté pans, and cutting boards dangle from hanging racks above the cooking ranges and tables. The wooden table at the center of the room has been gnawed deeply over many years by every type of blade. It emits an odor that must be the platonic scent, the one and original, all-encompassing smell of succulence. Come in, come in! A rotund man chirps from behind the counter on the far side of the kitchen, barely visible behind the hanging pans. He steps forward to meet me, brushing his hands across the gray apron tied at his waist. His sleeves are rolled above his elbows, and soap covers his forearms. His hair is thin and silver, and his eyes are like black olives nestled in his crinkled face. His nose is almost impossibly long, and so crooked I almost laugh. He is like an imp, mischievous and full of energy. I suppose you will be needing supplies for your first meal, he says, not really asking. I remember the list in my hand. I need these things. He nods and takes the list from me, glancing over it. Mm-hmm. You really should add garlic to the Papa El Pomodoro. Yes, thank you, I say, holding irritation from my voice. He clearly has no idea what I am, what my skin does for my cooking. Garlic is one herb I rarely use because it conflicts heavily with my own flavor, but I am determined not to insult the chef. Very good. My name is Gustave, by the way. He holds out his hand. Instinctively, I give him mine and wait for him to bring it up to his mouth for a taste. Instead, he grasps my hand firmly and we shake. I'll have one of the staff deliver these. A hiss rises suddenly from one of the rear ranges as a pot of pasta boils over. Mad. He ducks through the hanging pots and to the stove. I back out of the kitchen. I feel awe at the facilities nearly four times the size of what I had available to me, but disappointment with the master chef. Surely Contessa will be impressed with my meal if Gustave is my sole competition. I check my recipes at least a dozen times, determined to make the best meal ever to grace her lips. I have decided this first meal will be spicy yet delicate. I stir the cream soup with my finger for several turns and then replace the lid. I feel like I have forgotten something, and then I remember that I must prepare the chicken. I remove two breasts from a package in the cooler and rub them gently against my collarbone and the base of my neck, then down across my chest where my specialized sebaceous glands are most productive. Once the food has been tended to, I move to the bay window at the front of my home and watch the path through the grove, still keeping an eye on the cooking meal. I have never burned a dish, and I will certainly not on this night of all nights. Just before the sun sets, I see her, gliding down the path like a ghost. She is beautiful, staggeringly so, with long blonde tresses, pale skin. From the color of her skin and hair, I know what color her areoles will be, how sensitive to my touch they will be. Her body is like a cover of a book. My order training has given me the ability to read her completely. I cannot wait to turn the pages within her. As she draws near, I check the meal one last time, don a robe, and then wait for her knock. When it comes, my heart begins to race, and I struggle to bring it under control. When I open the door, she stands in the shadow as if embarrassed. I have seen hesitation like hers before, but it is simple to overcome. Come in, please, I say. She shifts from foot to foot, her hands folded before her. Finally, she steps inside. Her eyes dart around the room, and her nostrils flare, filling with the scent of my cooking. I am Antonio, I say, and offer her my wrist. I am your assessor ma. I am Contessa, she says. Her voice surprises me. It reminds me of honey. I will enjoy letting her taste me, I decide, as much as I am able. Are you hungry? She nods. Starving. "'Something smells wonderful.' "'Come,' I say, leading her to the altar. "'The special reclining couch was installed before my arrival. "'I slip the cloth of the robe from my shoulders and let it fall to the floor. "'Please, sit,' I say, and indicate the chair beside the couch. "'As I leave for the kitchen, she begins to undress. "'The ripple of goose flesh across her arms startles me. "'I return with a salad applied and a bowl of soup in my hands.' I have made a fine insalata mista and a heavy chowder with roasted peppers. Contessa sits before my bench stiffly, her legs crossed. I quickly place the soup on the stand beside my bench and take my place. Under my breath, I recite the holy prayer. I am the chef. Lean forward, I say to her with a half smile. I take a dollop of soup onto my finger and offer it to her across the space between us. Slowly, she leans in and takes my finger into her mouth, licking it clean. When her lips close down, her pupils dilate. A smile begins to warm the delicate features of her face. I am the lover. The courses rush by in a blur. She devours the soup from the bowl of my hands, and then the chicken I tear into strips and feed them to her from my shoulder. For dessert, I offer her ice cream from my stomach. When I present it, she gasps isn't that cold? God has gifted me with an ignorance of such pain. The ice cream feels no colder or warmer than a person's touch. The nerves of my skin have been taught to lie, but only so much. We, SS can still burn or suffer frostbite if we are not careful. I am the priest. Mmm, she says. She licks the vanilla from around my belly button. I watch her attack the dessert and marvel at the sudden dispassion I feel. I had half hoped that she would not give in to me so easily as all my other devoros had. I had seen real courtships when couples visited the house together. They flirted and teased one another, taunting each other with their desires. But I am irresistible. She mounts me suddenly, even before finishing the dessert. I barely have time to flood the proper blood vessels and ready myself." Her body rises and falls, and with each motion, she leans in and takes another lick of the melted cream from my skin. I am the secret, unknowable ingredient. "'You must clean me also,' she demands between gasps. I carefully lick the cream that is collected between her breasts, obeying but not feeling. "'Oh my God! Oh my God!' Her stamina seems endless. Each time I expect her to slip away, she seems to regain her wind. In order to hasten the end, I dedicate myself to finding the methods that make her flush, the places to kiss, how to drift my fingers along her spine, the timing and motion of the hips. These find their way naturally as I have been trained. I become her perfect meal and her perfect lover. We move from the table sometime in the night into the shower, from there to the bed, Her mouth never leaves my body for more than a few moments. She explores my many variations of flavor with intrepidness. At dawn, she pulls away, and as quickly as she had come, she departs, slipping out the door, leaving only an orange-scented breeze. I lay in bed and wonder, not for the first time, nor do I imagine the last. What is it that I am missing in this? The sound of her moans, the sheen of sweat, and the wild look in her eyes— All of these things tell me something, dig beneath a surface, and search for purchase on a cliff that has been polished smooth by the cuisinados. I offer the reactions these things seek as a learned response, only to enhance her ecstasy, not in service of my own. I listen to the crickets sing from the poolside, searching my reactions, and I find something that surprises me. I am lonely. But for whom? I fall asleep to the echoing of the unanswered question. The first evening sets the example for the many nights that follow. Contessa visits every other night, and I learn to have meals prepared just before sunset. She storms in now, her voice more commanding with each passing night. She is taking possession of me, and I am conditioned to accept it, even enjoy it in a sense. Some nights, she finishes the food I have prepared for her, but many nights, she falls on me in the midst of the second or third course. I watch as she thrashes wildly atop me, fingers covered in chocolate. Her pupils are pinpricks of ink in blue seas. It is then that I realize what she is. We assessormas have a word for women and men like Contessa. Taste buds. Their sensitivity to our superflavonoids is so great that we are like a narcotic to them. ''Whose idea was I?'' I ask in one of the few brief pauses between orgasms. She lies on her side, her lips locked around my left nipple. She sucks gently, casually. This is how she relaxes now. ''I hinted to my husband that an assessor would please me,'' she says, letting me fall from her mouth. My skin cools as her saliva evaporates in the night air. ''It took him an entire year,'' "'Have you prayed with many of us before?' I ask. She shrugs. "'A few.' She presses her lips against mine. "'Let me taste your tongue.' She probes the depths of my mouth, and I force my hands to run the length of her back. Am I just a drug to her? It is the ultimate achievement of the Cuisinados for her to give in to me so completely. I have achieved the goal they have been seeking for decades— I am at once a sex object and a tool, and not the least bit human to her. Through me, he loves her, even if she does not reciprocate. I did not expect how bitter this would make me feel. She now visits me each night and also in the mid-afternoon. My muscles begin to ache from the effort of pleasing her. When she announces one morning that she is to visit family in Asia, I am intensely relieved. For the first time in weeks, I sleep in. I subsist on the leftovers that have accumulated in my stores from the nights when Contessa cannot contain herself, which has become nearly every night. I pass time reading from a collection of traditional cookbooks in the house's net, the only material she has seen fit to give me access to. I have no vid in my bungalow, and I do not enter the house except to visit the kitchen. I have no idea when Signor Escamillo will return, and I cannot be caught in the open when he does. As much as I have come to fear Contessa and her desire for my flavor, I fear him more. The feeling of standing still has come to me once again. I had thrown myself into my work early on, but now that Contessa is gone, I begin to think about my own future again. The cookbooks describe preparations that are mythical. Serves fourteen? I visit Gustave in his kitchen. He prepares meals for the staff every night and lets me watch him work. I am aloof to his few feeble attempts at friendship. I have already decided that I must accelerate my plans and find a way away from the Contessa. My plans leave no room for friendship. One evening, as I sit and watch, I am amazed at the almost blasphemous way that Gustave tenderizes meat. Where I would use my fists, he uses a common wooden mallet. He grins as he pounds a slab of meat with it, over and over again. What do you think of love? I ask from my stool in the corner. You have too much time on your hands if you are thinking about that. Gustave tosses his steaks on the grill and wipes his hands dry on his apron. Do you know what your problem is? You define yourself by what you do. You need a hobby. Some of the staff gather to play poker. We could use another. I shake my head. I played poker once. They accused me of marking cards. Gustave laughs. We'll make you wear gloves. All problems have solutions, you know. I don't think cards are for me. The only thing I enjoy is cooking, but I am my own crutch. If something doesn't turn out right, I touch it a little more. You never do that. He shakes his head. Terrible. You'll die of old age before you're thirty. Listen to me, my friend. I know something about these things. Love is nothing but trouble, and every man needs a hobby. And you're right. Your skin is a crutch. He grins. Just forget all that stuff, will you? I sigh. I'll forget about it if you teach me how to do what you're doing to those vegetables. Come over here, then. I do. I'm careful not to ask the questions that I wanted to ask. What is love like? And how do you fake it? Another week passes and Contessa has not returned. I surprise myself by missing her company. Besides Gustave and Susanna, Contessa is the only person with whom I have contact. I cannot sleep in her absence. I have read every cookbook three times over, and, unable to sleep, I decide to explore the Escamilla house. If I don't find something to do, I will go crazy. Remembering what Gustave said about the poker game, I wander to the house. The kitchen is empty and dark, and I pick my way through into a large dining room that seats a hundred people. It, too, is dark, but I can imagine the glamorous meals the has served here. I pad through the empty halls of the large house, up and down staircases, searching for something that might somehow qualify as companionship. I listen for the sounds of life, and at first the halls are quiet. Then I hear the bubbling sound of canned laughter. A vid is playing somewhere, and by the sound of it, it's playing my favorite kind of show, a sitcom. Everyone on a sitcom is happy. I follow the sound to a crescent of light spilling out under a door just cracked open. I peek inside. The room is decorated sparsely. A black leather couch, real leather, sprawls in the center of the room, facing a wall-sized vid screen. Larger-than-life characters make quips at one another. The canned laughter fills the room, echoing from the corners. In the glow of the vid, I can just make out the figure sitting on the couch. She is everything that Contessa is not, at least in appearance. Her hair is black as well-used cast iron, and her skin is dusky-toned. She is composed of compact curves and youthful softness. I start to back away, realizing who she must be. I picture Escamilla's white knuckles His daughter speaks without looking away from the vid. Come in. I'm not supposed to talk to you. I take another step back. You're my stepmother's gift. That must be awkward to be given to another as a gift. She turns to look at me, and I glance downward. Aren't you supposed to be a kind of priest? What kind of priest fucks his parishioners? Her words sting like vinegar. All I have to answer her with are pre-programmed responses. THE ORDER BELIEVES THAT PASSION IS THE PATH TO GOD. ASSESSORMAS ARE INSTRUMENTS FOR THIS PURPOSE. I HAVE STEPPED INTO THE ROOM. WHAT AM I DOING? THE ORDER BELIEVES. SHE RAISES A THIN BLACK EYEBROW. I BELIEVE IT AS WELL. JUST BEING NEAR HER IS FILLING A VOID OF COMPANIONSHIP WITHIN ME, BUT LEAVES A PIT OF FEAR INSTEAD. I WAS LOOKING FOR GUSTAV. Gustave DOESN'T LIVE HERE. HE HAS A HOME IN THE CITY. You can imagine what that's like for a girl with the munchies. She smiles. I'm Rosalinda, by the way. I had better go. I turn to the door, and she is up and across the room in the time it takes me to blink. The light of the vid flashes across her arm, and I see the intricate swirl of tattoos across her arms. I have never seen that kind of body art in my Devoros. It is marvelous how after so many years and so many women— This one stands out so readily. Wait just a moment. She leans in slowly. I am frozen. Her tongue darts from between her dark lips and daubs my cheek. She withdraws, making a face. Too bitter! She waves her hand. You can go. I am too stunned to say anything. I back into the hall and she softly closes the door in my face. Her eyes never leave me. THE KITCHEN IS QUIET, EXCEPT FOR THE CRACKLING OF THE ANCIENT STONE OVEN. I COME HERE MORE AND MORE OFTEN NOW. I CANNOT AVOID CONTESSA ENTIRELY, BUT SHE CANNOT EXPECT ME TO BE IN MY ROOM AT ALL TIMES. SO, MY FRIEND, HOW IS LIFE ON RANCHERO ESCAMILLA TREATING YOU THESE DAYS? Gustave NEEDS THE DOUGH WITH A ROLLING PIN. I CANNOT TAKE MY EYES AWAY FROM THE TOOL. I'VE BEEN COOKING FOR TWO AGAIN. I ASSUME Senora ESCAMILLA HAS RETURNED. I NOD. Indeed, she returned two weeks ago, and I have barely had a night of rest since. I can smell the other essences on her skin. I wish that they would have eroded her passions for me, but instead they have strengthened it. She comes to me as if she has an itch that I cannot satisfy for long. "'Still thinking about love?' Gustave tosses the dough into the air, spinning it expertly. "'You should take up gardening. There's a fallow plot behind your little house.' Nobody's planted there in a few years, but you could get some nice tomatoes. You like fresh tomatoes, yes? The ones you bring me are fine. It doesn't matter anyway. I could serve gruel and she wouldn't notice. Gustav cocks his head. Oh? I decide to confide in him. There is no one else. She scares me, Gustav. She needs something I cannot give her. I am one of the most skilled in my order, but I cannot satisfy her. Gustave walks to his spice rack and retrieves a handful of spices. He takes them to a bowl and begins mixing them with a thick tomato sauce. "'That's an unpleasant situation for you to be in. Perhaps?' He tastes a spice from the tip of his finger, then adds a shake. "'You could do something to reduce her interest in you. Behave in some fashion that repels her.' "'I've thought of that. But what? She doesn't see me as a human being. I'm just a tool for her pleasure.' There are ways to remind her. You think about that. He slathers sauce on the dough, dusts it with cheese and a handful of vegetables, and puts the dish in the oven. What are you making next? I ask. Strudel, Gustav answers. Could you teach me? Gustav considers the idea. Okay, but promise me one thing. Anything. Gustav grins. Don't put your thing in the dough. I know that he means well but his words still sting. I lie beside the pool, half asleep. If I even shift myself, my muscles scream. I don't know how much longer I can keep up with her. Each night, she takes longer and longer to climax. I have looked into her eyes, and I have seen a pain that mirrors my own looking back. If it wasn't for the threat of her husband, I would run away. I hear footsteps coming from behind me, and I stifle a groan. She's far too early. She has only been gone for two hours. I roll over. Rosalinda is there, not Contessa. Hello, she says. Someone has placed an orange blossom in her hair. There is another scent in the air, unmistakable even among the orange trees. Cinnamon. My mouth begins to water. I think I've had too much sun, I stammer. I need to go inside. You're frightened of me. She laughs at this. No, I'm frightened of your father, I say. I rise to my feet, joints groaning. Don't be. He's harmless. She reaches out for my hand. I don't withdraw it. She raises it to her mouth and places my finger on her tongue. She closes her lips softly. I slowly remove my finger from her mouth. It could grow on me, with time, Essesoma Antonio. She uses my title like a devout woman and it is that that breaks my daze and makes me turn away, to hide inside. When I look over my shoulder, she is still watching me, with a look in her eyes that is completely unfamiliar to me. It is not hunger like Contessa's. What is it? I realize that I am thinking of Rosalinda more and more. At first, I convince myself that she simply intrigues me. She is different from anyone else here, and so my attention is drawn to her. Anyone would be interested in my situation. I awake in the night to the sharp scent of cinnamon. My heart beats rapidly, and I rush to the window. Is she coming? I cannot see her, her glorious shape in the shadows drifting to me. Where is she? And so I realize I am in love with her. Isn't this what they say love does to you? Finally, I know what it feels like, the terrible pain and pleasure all at once. Now I have the knowledge... I need for my plan. Contessa sprawls across the bed beside me. The remains of the main course are scattered across the room in small brown splatters. I am so demolished that I cannot remember what I have prepared. She is weak in these moments. She never sleeps near me. She rarely lets me sleep, but she does allow her defenses to fall in that space between waking and dreaming. Sometimes she speaks to me. I have meditated, even prayed, on Gustave's advice, and the path seems clear before me. God has guided me to Rosalinda, to the way she makes me feel. I think of Rosalinda, and the blueprint of my plan becomes clear. There is one way to remind her that I am more than an instrument. I love you, Contessa, I say. She rolls over quickly to look at me. Her fear is unmistakable. What? You're not capable of that. I laugh, my bitterness spilling out into the room. I cannot be aroused, but I can love Contessa. Come away with me. Leave your husband. The lies are like acid on my tongue. It is the only way to save her, I tell myself. The only way towards freedom for the both of us. I can't, she begins to say, and then she sobs. It is as if I struck her across the face. I can't. You can't. You were supposed to be his instrument. I can't think of the words to respond to her accusation. She is a believer? Contessa, I... She leaps out of the bed, gathering her clothes frantically. It's sacrilege! It's blasphemy! She runs from the house, and my front door bangs behind her. I can hear her great, racking sobs even as she runs up the path. I lay back onto the bed, listening until the sounds fade away. I cannot think. What I feel, I cannot understand. "'Have I sinned?' "'I turn away from the answer to my question "'as soon as I think it. "'I wake to the sound of a quiet knock at the door. "'Good,' I think. "'Contessa has come back. "'I can tell her it was all a lie. "'I think I understand now. "'Her search, through me, it terrified me. "'God has given me a challenge, and I have failed. "'She must give me a second chance. "'I hurry to the door, throw it open.' Again, there is Rosalinda, where I expect my Devereux. The mixture of feelings in me resolves into something alien. I want to reject it, expel it from my heart. It clings steadfast within. My skin flushes for the first time since I was a child. Rosalinda steps inside and slams the door behind her, shoving me backwards. I stumble, but do not fall. Do you really love her? What? I cannot understand how these Escamilla women always say what I do not expect. She can't love you! Rosalinda's voice is frantic. You can't love her, she says more calmly. It's against the rules. No, I say. I can't. I don't. Then why did you say that you did? Are you trying to ruin yourself? Her voice is shrill and incredulous. Yes! I shout. The word echoes through the bungalow. I remember once thinking at large. Now it seems so crowded. I was... I am afraid of her, I whisper. For her. At first, I thought she used me as a drug. Now, I know she wants something I can't give. Absolution. I don't believe. Rosalinda shakes her head. Her black locks dance wildly with the vigorousness of it. It's more complicated than that. She thinks God owes her an explanation for terrible things she's been through. I don't understand. She sighs. You have to tell her that you don't love her. You have to tell her the truth. I will, I say. The truth. It's rising in me now. The words are coming to my lips. Rosalinda, I love you. You're confused, she says, looking away. Ever since you called me bitter, I say. You are unlike any woman I have ever met. You don't succumb to me. So you fall in love? Over something so simple? I was only flirting, you idiot. I don't love you. You're attracted to me, I say, desperate now. You could love me. I was hoping to screw you, not marry you, she snaps. She begins to say something else, then closes her mouth and shakes her head, eyes squeezed shut. Her denial has torn me to pieces. I have nothing left to say. She leaves as angry as she entered. After a moment, I follow her out the door and climb the path to the mansion. I stand beneath Contessa's window and shout to the darkened pane, I don't love you! It was a lie! Forgive me! God will forgive you! I shout it until I cannot remember who my words are meant for. Near dawn, I stagger to my bed in a mindless daze and fall into a deep sleep. I awaken to the sound of footsteps and squint out from beneath the covers. Signor Escamilla stands silhouetted by the window, his long black cane raised above his head. I lift my hands to cover my face, but the blows fall like iron hail. Pain blossoms and wilts across my body. I warned you! Escamilla's blows are furious. Before the cane strikes me across the head, I am dimly aware that I am screaming Rosalinda's name. More loud hammering at the door rouses me to consciousness. I pull myself to my feet, gasping at the sharp pains in my sides, and stagger towards the door. I pass a fractured mirror in the foyer, fractured as my own appearance. A trail of crusted blood runs from my nose to the corner of my mouth. Both of my eyes are blackened. Bruises cover my torso, long purple strips the width of Escamilla's cane. I gingerly touch a rib and flinch. How had it come to this? How could I have strayed so far? The knock again, softer now. I open the door carefully, just a crack. Gustave's broad face peers in. His roomy eyes widen, and the old chef gasps. He pushes inside. I don't have the strength to resist, and fall back against the wall, sliding down into a crouch. Gustave closes the door quietly. He wears ordinary clothes, not his working whites. "'A small bundle wrapped in paper is tucked under his arm "'and crinkles quietly when he moves. "'Poor Antonio,' Gustave whispers. "'He bends down to examine me. "'Indeed, poor Antonio. "'I am the abused tool snapped in half and thrown aside, "'a broken knife that has cut its master. "'You'll never have quite the same good looks, but you'll heal. "'The broken nose will give you character.' "'He makes a failed attempt to smile.' I can't be the priest or the ingredient any longer, I croak. No, Gustave agrees. You cannot. They are all in agreement of this. They? They think it would be best. Gustave pauses. I feel his coming words chipping at me like ice picks. If you were to be released from your contract, fully paid, they've sent me this. He offers me the bundle. There's something there for me as well, the old man says quietly. I cradle the bundle against my broken ribs and tug gently at the strings of the package with my free hand and teeth. The paper unfolds with soft whispers and a cool air scented with cinnamon. A bundle of crisp bills, clasped with a plastic band, tumbles to the floor, along with a leather-bound book. Gustave catches the book deftly and hands it to me. I can barely see the book through the tears in my eyes. Careful with this. It is very old, Gustave says. What is it? These are my family recipes, going back eight generations. There are ingredients in them that don't exist anymore. I've penciled substitutions in the margins. You will see. I can't accept this, I say, trying to speak around the hard lump in my throat. It's nothing. I know them by heart. You'll need them. When you receive the reversal treatments, cooking will be different. You will have to relearn everything you know, Gustav says. It was very hard for me afterwards. My grandmother gave me this book so I could learn. I would have liked to teach the recipes to you myself. I cannot bear to look up at him. Still my friend, even after I have ruined things so thoroughly. There's a cab waiting for you at the gate. Hurry now. It won't wait much longer. There's enough there to rehabilitate you, plus some. Gustave offers his hand to me, and I take it, climbing to my feet. The pain is almost unbearable. She should come with me, I say. <sighs> I know that you believe that you love her, my friend, but you do not. You only love what she can do for you. There may not seem to be a difference to you, but one day you will know it. Gustave nods to himself and opens the door. Go, friend. But one last bit of advice from an old man. There is an old French saying you must remember. A chasseur des pommes, then sur les fromage." Go. With a shove, he thrusts me out into the night. I glance back up at the house as I jog through the ever-blossoming orange grove towards the gate. A small globe catches my eye, and I freeze. A single bright orange impossibly hangs from the tip of a branch. "'Your ways truly are mysterious,' I whisper to him. I take one glance back at the mansion, wishing I knew what was said while I was unconscious. A silhouette stands illuminated in Contessa's window, and, as I look, it is joined by another. At the gate, I climb into the hovering cab, giving the driver a curt nod. The driver gives the cab lift, and we begin to soar over the fields and to the east. Where should I put you down? The cab driver asks. Hospital? Please. Sure thing. All I can think about is Gustave's advice. An old saying among chefs, "'It was a rule of thumb for choosing wine. "'Buy on apples, sell on cheese.' "'Meaning apples can bring out the taste of a wine, "'and cheese can mellow it. "'I remember reading it in a cookbook once, "'but I have never needed it. "'My skin has always enhanced the wine like the apple. "'But soon I will taste like any man, salty and bland. "'My life has always been colored by the flavor of my skin.' I will keep Gustav's words with me as a reminder that it need not be that way. There are other flavors, other ways. I cannot separate the aches in my body from the ache I feel in my soul. What will I do now? I think I will learn to feel more than this pain. And then I will go looking for God. He owes me after these years in his service. I lay back into the seat and close my eyes as the Escamilla estate vanishes behind and below. I pray for his guidance. My prayer is wordless, but it has meaning. It is baptismal. And that was our story. I have to say, apart from the dehumanization... I'm a little fascinated thinking about this idea taking off. Food, sex, and religion. It runs straight up and down Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So, again, we're brought to you by Scott Sigler's breakout thriller novel, Infected. We talked a bit last week about why buying this book is a good idea for podcast fans. It's a good thing for podcast fiction writers, too. If this is a hit, we can expect that it'll be really good for other writers who are writing great stories and making a name for themselves on podcasts, like Mer Lafferty and Jeffrey Arderigo, and, hell, Steve Ely. I've got a novel floating around New York. Being able to say a podcast audience sells books, yeah, I wouldn't mind that. But here's the thing. It wouldn't be worth pitching like this if the novel was bad. I wouldn't stake my credibility on saying, yes, this is all a good thing for podcasting if the book sucked. It doesn't suck. I actually gave Sigler his first blurb for Infected back in early 06. He shared the draft with a few of us before podcasting it. The quote I gave him was, and I mean this, Sci-fi horror at its most personal and graphic. This is Stephen King turned up to 11. So, April 1st. And by the way, we're still giving away signed copies of the book via Scott. Send an email to infected at escapepod.org with your mailing address for your shot at winning. Again, this is so long that I'm going to skip the feedback. I'm sorry about that, but I feel weird enough about going even a little over an hour. We'll start to catch up next week. Meanwhile, Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, Creative Commons License, etc., etc. Check out poddisc.com and pseudopod.org, and I am really jazzed about PodCastle. I also want to give a welcome to the newest member of the Escape Artists team. Matt Arnold is joining our staff as assistant to the publisher, and starting now, we'll be making sure, among other things, that email response times get a hell of a lot better than they have been. So welcome, Matt. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can find more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes, of course, from Sir Arthur C. Clarke. He said... It may be that the old astrologers had the truth exactly reversed when they believed that the stars control the destinies of men. The time may come when men control the destinies of stars. We'll be back next week to start the next 50 episodes. Until then, have fun.